Father, we come to you this morning asking you to speak to us through your word, asking you to encourage the hearts of the believers and call the hearts of those who do not. May everything said this morning honor and glorify you. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, by way of short review, we examined verses 1 through 5 as we see one of the great trials ever in human history in which God, through his prophet Micah, called the people of God to trial. And he brought forth a stinging indictment to them. And that indictment was that they had grown weary of him, frustrated, irritated with him. And he reminded them of his salvation for them, his salvific work of bringing them out of Egypt and how he brought them and delivered them into the promised land, regardless of how they had treated him and how they had strayed so quickly after all they'd saw him do and engaged in idol worship. He reminded them of his faithfulness and his covenantal promises that he did indeed deliver them into the promised land and wanted them to remember the saving acts of the Lord. And this morning, we review their response. Before we do, some of us in the room um, uh, know the phrase, the $64,000 question. Back in the mid-50s, 1955 exactly, there was a TV show. Back when television was just becoming popular, not what it is today in our culture, it was still a new thing back then. And the concept of a game show, to us, we're so used to it, there's been tens of thousands of them, it seems, The concept of a game show was still new, and a man came up with the idea of what is now we know as the $64,000 question show. started in 1955. It took over America to the point where President Eisenhower would not allow interruptions so that he could watch the $64,000 question. It was just a series of questions. The more they escalated, the more important. We remember this in the modern version of who wants to be a millionaire, more than likely. I assume they stole it right out of this one. Every question gets ramped up and gets more and more complex, so eventually you could win $64,000. I didn't look it up. I'd be curious what that is in today's monetary value when adjusted for inflation. But clearly that was a lot of money, and it swept the nation. So much to the point where in our culture, even today, some 60 years later or so, We still hear the idiom, oh, that's the $64,000 question. Or now we just kind of round it up. That's the million-dollar question. But that is what, where the origins of that comes from, is the $64,000 question. And what we see asked in verse 6, as we pick it up, is, of all $64,000 questions, the chief question of all. For the reaction to the people of God, Hearing the stinging indictment, they come up with the question. The question that separates all things. The question of all questions in our lives. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? The question is simply, how is a man right with God? That's the question. A few weeks ago, or a few months ago now, I had breakfast um, at, with a man we were both in a business engagement in the hotel uh, lobby, or lobby, the hotel restaurant. We are having breakfast. And the uh, conversation migrated fairly quickly into church. And he was explaining his church, and I was talking about my church. And so I finally just simply asked him, so what does your church teach you on how is a man right with God? 
And you could have heard the Chinese gong in the background. You know, because the blank stare on his face, he had never thought of it. Folks, we can go to all the Lions Clubs and Kiwanis Clubs and Rotary Clubs, and we can get our socialization all over the place. But that doesn't answer the most important question to man in this universe, which is, how is a man right with God? That is what the church seeks to tell and to declare. How is a man right with God? I think just by reading this response, we can tell the attitude of repentance has come from the people of God. For notice, there's no defiance. They're not defensive. They're not argumentative. They don't try to slough it off or explain themselves. When confronted with the reality that God has an indictment with them, their answer is, what can I do? What can I bring before you? And notice where they go. Their first question is, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Verse 7. With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Notice they immediately go to religious practice. Now, the first thing you kind of want to answer is yes, because they say, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Well, in reality, the answer is yes, because that was the sacrificial law, that burnt offerings were in their sacrificial system, that with calves a year old. It seems like you want to say yes, but you can tell by the attitude and how they're relaying it that they already know the answer is no. They say, shall I come to you with sacrifices? Even though we know that's what they were doing. But then you can kind of see the reply ratchet up as the prophet answers on behalf of the people. How about, is the Lord pleased with a thousand rams? Or how about ten thousands of rivers of oil? Now, Actually, there were times, very rare times, when many animals were sacrificed, but not by an individual. They were corporate times, such as the dedication of Solomon's temple. So immediately we leave reality and step into hyperbole, the idea of exaggerating to prove a point. Can I come before you with an offering? Well, how about if I bring a really big offering? How about a thousand rams? How about... A 10,000 rivers of oil. Now, there were a few offerings that the Israelites brought that were simply what are called meal offerings or grain offerings. You didn't slaughter them. They were actually food offerings. And all of them required uh, an actually a mixture of oil. But oil back then was very expensive. It cost a lot of money. It was very precious. So it only required a little bit, a half cup to a cup maybe in our, in our uh, modern culture understand. But the reply is... How about 10,000 rivers of it? I mean, we, uh, we love to go uh, travel, and in North Carolina especially, there are some beautiful rivers running off the mountains when you stand next to them. The volume of water that you see move across the river, never stopping, is impressive. They measure it in how many cubic feet per minute a river pushes. And he's saying, the reply is saying, how about 10,000 rivers of oil? Is that going to be enough? And then comes the next question, well, how about my firstborn? Will you take my firstborn? Now, some commentators have taken this literally. 
that they, and, and, I, and I'll explain why, that they actually think this was a real question because, now remember, Micah ministered to three different kings over his period. A little bit of Jotham, who was the son of Uzziah. Most of his ministry was to a king named Ahaz, who was highly wicked. And then the last part of his ministry was a king named Hezekiah. More than likely, based on what I see here and, and the, uh, the length of his ministry, this was happening during King Ahaz's rule. Ahaz, of all things, several things he did. One was he became so infatuated with the Assyrians who were laying siege to his uh, sister country up north that he actually visited them, worshipped their Baal gods, was so enamored with one of the altars that they had to Baal, he had it... He had it copied, duplicated, and had his folks build it and put it in the temple and replace the altar that was there. Highly defiling the temple. That was Ahaz. But he also at one time offered up his son as a sacrifice to Molech. He was engaged in child sacrifice. So it is possible that this is literally what he meant. The reply means, because we don't know if this is Ahab replying, this prophet replying on behalf. I don't think so. Because if you look at the, the flow of the, of the uh, of these replies, it's just ratcheting it up. Understanding if how about my you know how how about a burnt offering? No. How about a thousand rams? No. How about ten thousand rivers of oil? No. How about my firstborn? No. The point of the reply is that they understand they're empty. There's nothing they can bring, and there's nothing we can bring. There's nothing that we can bring before God that's acceptable. We just simply cannot. But they even focused on religious rituals. How about worship? How about us? What can I bring before God that he will find acceptable? How about if I come every Sunday morning and I never miss? Would that be enough? How about if I come every Sunday morning... And I'll come Sunday nights. Is that going to be enough? How about Sunday morning, Sunday nights, Wednesday nights? I will lead the youth and I'll teach Sunday school. Is that going to be enough? Or if we really get to the point, how about if I build an addition on the side of the church and I never leave? How about if I do that? How about if I give everything I have, I dedicate my entire life to it, Will that be enough? How about that? Can you feel the weight of their response? Because they know instinctively as they ratchet up the quantity and the amount of their response that it's just not enough. They realize the futility of religious works and their efforts. It just simply isn't enough. And then we come to verse 8. Verse 8, Micah 6, 8, is one of the most famous verses in all the Old Testament. It just has been for years and years. Frankly, I don't know if it sounds right to say it, but I find it one of the most beautiful verses in the Old Testament. How it's worded, how it flows, there's a sense of compassion that comes out of it. It's also been perverted these days. We've all heard of the newer um, movement called social justice, where it has a lot of Leftist ideas hiding under the concept of social justice quotes this verse all the time. Because it does have that sound to it. They misuse it. That's not what this verse is teaching. In essence, though, as we'll see, it is simply one of the great summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture. 
Do you remember years ago on television, probably, I'm not sure, 70s or 80s, probably a lot of people in the room remember this one. There was a commercial by a stockbroker, I think, a financial lady named E.F. Hutton. Do you remember this? When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Remember that? When E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. For those who don't know, there was a commercial out there and that there'd be, you know, a restaurant full of people and they're already dining and the husband and wife be talking and they'll say, well, my broker, E.F. Hutton says, and they would stop and everybody in the restaurant would lean in and it was dead quiet and the people in the park would all stop and listen. It was my, my broker, E.F. Hutton. When he, when people, when he speaks, people listen. Folks, right here comes the question. As the reply comes, if there's any a time for us to stop and listen, this is it. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And here comes the question that we should all stop and listen. For God is about to speak. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly before your God. There you go. God answered them. When they said, how about my religious acts? How about I ratchet it up? God says, no. I've told you already. Here's what I require of you. We're going to look at this requirements in just two phases. The first perspective and somewhat of a very literal understanding of it. The second, we'll look at it with more of a discerning eye. So first comes the question, which I think is a very fair question when you look at it. Is God answering them with a works salvation after all? Because he's actually telling them what they can do. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly. That's it. That's the list. Is he teaching works salvation? I'm going to make the assumption that we are all of a somewhat like-minded and that I shouldn't have to spend too much time on the fact that that is not what God is teaching. But we're reminded of ourselves in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith. That faith is God's gift to us. That way we cannot boast. Salvation is not of works. He's not teaching works salvation. However, we can't ignore the fact he did indeed give a list. But in the Old Testament and New, lists are actually very common. Happen all the time. For one, lists have a tendency to give us comfort. Guys, you all know exactly what I'm talking about when you go to the store with a list. The shopping list, the grocery list. You can feel really good if you checked off every one of the things you're supposed to get. You didn't blow it. Lists bring us comfort. In the spiritual word, though, lists bring us false comfort. But nonetheless, lists are helpful. The most famous list, I think, of all, spanning thousands of years on multiple continents, is, of course, the Ten Commandments. That is a list. It's a list of ten things. Again, could make you feel comfortable. But think of that rich, uh, rich young ruler that came to see Jesus. He said, Master, I've kept the whole list. I've kept the law. I've kept the list. I've got them all checked off. I haven't done any of them. And Jesus' reply, cutting right to the quick, was, oh, well, if you are perfect, then simply sell all you have, give it to the poor, and follow me. And his reaction was devastation. He sadly turned away and left because he was rich. Now, thou shalt not be greedy isn't actually on that list. 
The Ten Commandments doesn't say, thou shalt not love money, thou shalt not be greedy. It's not on the list. And he said, I've completed the list. I'm following the list. I've always done it. I'd like to know how old he really was. For the last 25, 30 years, Master, I've kept the list. Uh, no, you didn't. One question. Why don't you just sell all you have? Oh. He didn't actually follow the list. You see, lists are simply examples and excellent summaries. They give us, they put skin and flesh on what the real requirements are. That We can see it. We can touch it. We as humans need that. But they're not ever meant to be the formula that we just check it off and we're good. They're never the formula. They are always examples to show us something that's behind it, something greater than it is. We're familiar with this. When Jesus came, Matthew 5, and he's giving the Sermon on the Mount. Remember this? When he said to them, you've heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But I say to you, if you even hate your brother, you've done so. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, even if you look wrongly, you have. He was explaining to them that the list was just an example to understand what's behind the list. So we don't see salvation by works here. But we do get a hint of what it is. However, if indeed, excuse me, if I could back up, what also we see here is, in essence, a summary of the Ten Commandments. It's exactly repeating the Ten Commandments, only did it in three. Remember how Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandments? And he came back with two answers that neither one of them are on the list. Love your neighbors as yourself. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those actually aren't on the list. And that was his answer. Well, this is what it is. It's the same thing with this passage. For if you look, think with me, to do justice and love kindness. Right there is a great summary of the last six Commandments of loving your neighbor as yourself. For if you love your neighbor as yourself, justice and kindness and mercy will always flow. And third, to walk humbly before your God clearly falls in line with the first four of having no other gods before me. So in essence, what he was saying was, God's reply back was, here's my law. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly. But the problem with that is, if you're with me, that actually is somewhat frightening. Because we know you can't really keep the law. We can't. So was he replying back to them something that they can't do? So let's take a second look at it, and perhaps a little more of a discerning eye. First, he says to them, do justice. Now, Scripture clearly and repeatedly drives home the point of justice as a godly characteristic, reflecting the very character of God. It's listed hundreds of times in Scripture, either the word just or unjust. It is all over Scripture. Giving out exactly what is deserved, both good or bad. We think of justice a lot of times strictly in a legal sense of something negative. But it's just as unjust to not pay a laborer his or her wage. Giving out exactly what is deserved, whether good or bad, uh, reward or punishment, every time, exactly when, the exact amount, always. That's justice. That's also really hard, especially for fallen creatures such as us. 
to actually do justice always. The second, he says, love kindness. Now, depending on what translation you have, you might actually see this word rendered mercy. Uh, the King James, for instance, it says love mercy. Depending on which translation, you'll see love mercy. That's because the word here, kindness and mercy, are used interchangeably all throughout Scripture. For instance, Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. And here is the same word for His steadfast love endures forever. The same word is mercy. The same word is kindness. It brings together a whole concept of compassion and kindness and love, which, of course, if mercy is exercised, would be there. When we find ourselves doing what sometimes are often called acts of mercy, we refer to that, we're doing kindness and compassion. When somebody is less fortunate than us at any particular given time, and they're in need, and we have excess, and we meet that need, those are simply called acts of mercy or acts of kindness. So Jesus, or excuse me, so the prophet is saying, well, here's what God requires. Do justice. Give out everything that is needed exactly and appropriately every time. Be kind and compassionate and show mercy all the time, every time. Walk humbly before your God. Now, the word humbly alone is enough to go, uh-oh, because that is mankind's kryptonite, if I could use a Superman reference. It is what kicked Satan out of heaven, pride, it is what caused Adam and Eve to fall, to be and to know, as God does, pride, and it haunts all of us all the time. And the prophet says to walk humbly before God, knowing God is always and ever-present before you, to structure your life, to structure your ways under submission, to always know He is the potter and we are the clay, That is to walk humbly all the time before God. The concept of walking, of course, isn't just step by step. The concept of walking is how you structure your entire life. It's used all the time in Scripture. Leviticus 26.3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments, Deuteronomy 8.6, so you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. And, of course, one of the more famous Psalms, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the, un- of the wicked. For walking is how, in scriptural terms, is how we structure our entire life. It is who we are. And God says to walk humbly before your God. Now, the Israelites, when they heard this, this is what God requires, these three things. If they were using a discerning ear they were in a very bad spot because now they realized there is no hope. Their sacrifices couldn't atone for the sins, the ones they were called on the carpet for. And God's standard isn't something that they actually can meet. Those three standards he gave, they can't meet it. And the bad news for them and for us is the same. God really does require that we always do justice. He really does require that we always show kindness and mercy. He really requires us to always be humble. Turn with me to Matthew 5. 
Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. And if you could scroll all the way to the bottom of the chapter. Verse 43, again this is where Jesus is explaining the depth of the law, its breadth, how much it covers all facets of humankind. This is, listen to where he's in uh, verse 43 when Jesus is referring to loving your enemies. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Anybody can do that. That's what Jesus is saying. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And here it comes. This is an anvil. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus didn't change the standard. He echoes exactly what happened in Micah 6, 8. You must be perfect. Well, how can we ever comply with that? Because there is nothing we can bring. There's no sacrifice. There's no actions we can bring. What they heard as what we would hear this morning. You want to meet God's requirements, we need a Savior. We need a substitute. Micah 6.8 is a great summary of the gospel. For no matter what you bring, I have a requirement that is higher. You can't meet it. But the good news is, we know someone who did. This morning, during our confession of faith, we talked about a doctrine, uh, the doctrine of imputation. Big long word, imputation. Four syllables, that's tough for me to get out. I like one and two syllables. Imputation. 1 Corinthians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of the great proof texts of this doctrine. And listen to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, I'm hung up on that for some reason. For our sake, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What he's, what Paul is saying is, hey, for our sake, we took your, God took your sin, imputed it onto Jesus. That's a legal term for legally put it to his charge. So that we could take his righteousness and put it on you. That's imputation. We can't walk humbly and do justice and show kindness all the time. But Jesus did. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, which is where we're reading today, bear witness to it, the law of, excuse me, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. We can't keep God's standards. 
But we know someone who did. And by believing in Jesus, His works are imputed to us. When God sees us, He sees the righteousness of Jesus. He sees someone who will walk justly and do kindness. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. It's also worth pointing out that this passage in Micah 6 is not an evangelistic sermon to the lost Amalekites or Gergesites or Jebusites or Philistines that are walking around. This was a message to God's people that they need a Savior. And the message is to us too. We don't need the gospel just once that day of conversion, and then we something we forget about and move on. Every day, we have to keep God's requirements. Every day. We can't. So the application of the gospel, the hope of the gospel, applies to us every day. Now, Romans 8 is one of the great passages of encouragement to Christians. Chapter 8, verse 31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also not with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to the slaughters. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And here we go. Buckle your seatbelts. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's about it. We go from, in Micah 6, how about it? How about a sacrifice? How about a thousand sacrifices? How about ten thousand sacrifices? How about rivers of oil? We go from that, I can't meet it, to Romans 8, there's nothing you can do to keep you out. That's the work of Jesus. The requirement is simple. That you believe. Christ's walk, 32, 33 years, he met the law. Every jot, every tittle, every requirement. He fulfilled it so that when you believe, his righteousness is transferred to you. You have no hope without it. Tomorrow, when you sin, the righteousness of Christ still counts. 
Nothing will separate you from the love of God. So I asked us two questions this morning. If you don't, will you believe this morning? And if you do, will you continue to believe in worship? Turn with me to the back to Micah chapter 7 now. Sometimes it's encouraging to see how the story ends. Instead of just preaching what we see, let's take a look at how the story ends. It's my contention that their reply showed an attitude of repentance. That God told them what the requirements were, and I believe they understood it. For the very last few verses of Micah, I find highly encouraging. Micah chapter 7, verses 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? For the remnant of his inheritance, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. They got it. You will pardon my sins. Now, again, you don't know exactly when this passage was written, but think with me for a moment on the history of what happened. Ahaz was the scoundrel of all scoundrels. Maybe that's exaggerating. He was clearly a wicked king. I believe Micah came at that point in time because of what was going on with the people of God. The very next king with whom Micah also and Isaiah ministered was Hezekiah. Maybe another sermon or two one of these days. Hezekiah turned out to be perhaps the greatest biblical God-fearing king Israel had after David and Solomon. He restored all sorts of the temples back to godly worship. They had such a renaissance of worship and godliness and following him that it seems possible, or it seems likely, that Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what God requires of you, sunk in, and they repented and turned from the ways, because history bears that out. I ask you this morning, will you this morning also remember and worship him whose pure, sinless life has been imputed to you so that you can be the righteousness of Christ? Will you worship him this morning? Will you glorify him this morning and enjoy him forever? Let's pray. Lord, what a great reminder it is to us that the gospel is applied to us daily. It is not a one-time event, but it is something we need every day to reminded that without Christ, we are nothing. There's nothing we bring. There's nothing we do. There's nothing we can act that will bring us to your law to meet what you require. But Jesus did. Thank you for Jesus Thank you for the plan of salvation, which we simply believe and are counted righteous. Thank you for the fact that nothing will separate us from you because of Jesus. We worship him this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.